Hello and welcome to the Combat Classics Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Wilson, and today we have two guests. We have Anne Knigendorf in Kansas City. Knigendorf. Hi, Anne. Knigendorf. I do that every time. Every time. Okay. I just want to put an S in okay. there. Okay. Easy edit. Easy edit. I'm leaving all this in. You know, everybody loves the B-roll. <laughs> okay. Uh, who you who you recognize from both her interview podcast and also uh, the Hills Like White Elephants podcast we did with Matt Young. And so thank you for being here, Ann. Thank you for coming back. Thank you. And we also have a newcomer to the pod, Ashley Johnson, freelance writer in Dallas, Texas. Hi, Ashley. So today we're doing Madame Bovary, the whole thing, all 300 pages we're gonna just neatly tie up in a bow for you dear reader uh, you're it's gonna totally make sense after this or not <laughs> so the the overview to give our listeners who haven't read it a brief overview uh, it is the title is Madame Bovary by Flaubert and the book is notionally the story of Emma Bovary uh, we meet her when she is young and living with her father her mother has passed away. Uh, they are living in kind of pastoral France. Bumps into uh, Charles Bovary, uh, who is a doctor and at the time married. His wife dies, and he ends up marrying Emma. They move to a provincial town, and hilarity ensues, including her killing herself. So <laughs> that's the book. Uh, there is there is a a great deal of uh, adultery, a, uh, several uh, liaisons between Emma and some men that she runs into, and followed by her deciding to take her own life while she's leaving behind her young daughter uh, Beth and her husband, who then dies. And then Berth goes to live with Charles's mother, and then she dies. And then there's a big musical number at the end. Not really. At the cotton mill. At the cotton mill. <laughs> where birth is indentured. So, super upbeat, fun book. So, to uh, start off with an opening question. This, I think, potentially points at the relationships in the novel. But I think also maybe uh, Flaubert is doing something with our relationship to the novel. And this is uh, part three, chapter six. It's in two, page 250 if you've got the Lydia Davis translation, which Anne and I are working from. And this is at a point in the novel where things are not going well. Uh, Emma is in a lot of debt that she's been hiding from her husband. She is currently having an affair with Leon, uh, one of her lovers, and she, uh, the narrator, says, uh, then growing calmer, she came to see that she had probably disparaged him unjustly. She's talking about Leon. But vilifying those we love always detaches us from them a little. We should not touch our idols. Their gilding will remain on our hands. So I think this potentially, um, my question is something like, is this why Charles is so adamantly in love with Emma? And is this why uh, Leon and Rudolph lose interest in her? Because they've touched the gilding. And you think somehow Charles hasn't touched the gilding? I mean, aside from Bert, their daughter, there's not really any indication that they have any physical contact 
throughout the book. Like I can't remember a single time where they actually even touch. I'm trying to think back to the dance at the Vicomte in their kind of early part of their marriage. Do they even dance together? I don't know that they do, but I do know he would touch her throughout her many illnesses. Um, from, from a like medical perspective, he would mm. he would definitely be like touching her physically. But I think your question might get at touching her soul. Mm. She never does bear her soul, the gilded parts of her soul, to Charles. She's unable to do that and consistently blocks him from seeing the real her. But she does reveal that to her lovers. So. Maybe there's something black at the core of Emma that <laughs> that uh, sort of spurns the touch of the, of the person who's touching the gilded soul and and betrays the gildedness of it, right? That it really is just sort of gold paint once you scrape it away. I don't know. Yeah, does, I guess that that brings up the question: Does she have a gilded soul? I guess it depends on your question mm-hmm. on your like definition of gildedness perhaps um i don't know that word can be used to mean something important and beautiful or it can be used to make a mockery of something um and i think she does sort of gild a non-existent lily with the things that are in her life by the things that she buys and um the emotions she conveys and all of that other stuff um but it certainly it certainly is just a falseness. There's a falseness about like the outside of Emma, for sure. Yeah, well, there's especially the... when it comes to Charles, right? But she wants the house to look pretty, like you said, and she spends a lot of time dolling herself up um, for a man who already adores her, but then she doesn't ever, like you said, let him in at all. Um, and so she certainly, I think, makes herself gilded as far as Charles is concerned. Uh, but it is just like a candy coating. Yeah, on the on the very next page, in, on two fifty two, she, you know, is just talking to herself about Leon, and she says, "And yet I love him." She said to herself, and then the narrator writes, "It didn't matter. She was not happy and never had been." So, is part of Emma's allure that these men want to? make her happy is it is it just her beauty that's enticing them or is it something like i can make her happy the the hubris of that that they see she isn't but they convince themselves that maybe they can well when she starts out with each man is she presenting herself as happy already or it it seems like i have to find things now in the book but I know that with one of them, she's crying pretty quickly. Well, with Leon, when she first meets him, they do a lot of soul searching that might make him think, yes, this is somebody I'd like to try to make happy. But then he was in the same boat as she was. I think they kind of came together as, as peers in their, their uh, unhappiness and dissatisfaction with the you know, banality of life, didn't they, at the beginning? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think banality of life is a great way to describe that. I'm trying to flip through and find it as well because I vividly remember when they meet at the hotel, in the hotel dining room in Rouen, uh, or Yonville, and 
they are talking about they they i think this that scene brings out the kind of their in, shared inane existence because they're literally talking about the most kind of banal things but with a great excitement they're like do you like mountains oh me too do you like music oh me too and it's very it's very kind of middle school uh middle school love-esque where you connect to somebody because they're like no way you like music too i love music that's awesome but it also goes to show how maybe boring this kind of petty bourgeois and i think do i win the podcast by saying petty bourgeois first i think i think i just won the podcast yeah uh <laughs> went to there's we we all have listeners we all have madame bovary bingo cards in front of us uh and so there's going to be certain phrases that we are trying to work in in order to win bingo um but there is that just and that conversation when you first read it i mean i i don't know i'd love to to hear your impressions of that first meeting with leon to me it seemed very middle school-esque but Ooh, I think, yeah, that sounds Okay, because right. I can see, I found the spot after they've been talking and he, they go home and uh, Charles's slippers are in place next to the warm embers and she's fixed up Charles's vest and his buttons and she's done all these things to take care of her husband. Um. But, oh, wait, is this Leon or Charles? I messed that up. But on, on 93, Brian, he he says, what madness and how can I reach her? She seemed to him so virtuous and inaccessible that all hope, even the faintest, abandoned him. But is that, I think that is Leon thinking that. So maybe part of the allure is her inaccessibility, mm-hmm. but that she's gilded in this air of virtue mm-hmm. um, and that's part of the draw it's yeah. also not a coincidence that this town's name is Yonville. uh that's a de- definitely <laughs> a flaubertian pun for yawn like the english word yarn like this is a boring town and there's nothing to do and suddenly this woman shows up and she's kind of pretty and this 20 year old guy hasn't seen a pretty woman in forever so there's a, a sort of like thrown together middle schoolness about this for sure um that just comes back to how boring everything in this book is really like Mm -hmm. everything is just a bit boring and not quite interesting um starting really i think with yonville or yonvi how do you say that my french is failing me today i mean i would say yonville i think yonville (laughs) make it american (laughs) Uh uh-huh uh page 71 is is there is leon and emma's initial discussion at dinner at uh, the innkeeper at Madame La, La Francais. That's that's me trying to pretend like I speak French, everybody. You got it, you got I, it. I don't. My Somali's not bad, but French not so good. And the, it's, it's, it, for me, it's one of the funnier parts of the book where the, the man, Omez, the pharmacist, and Charles are talking about stuff. Um, hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and meadows and ammonia and manure and a lot of Yonville-esque kind of things. 
And then uh, Emma turns to Leon. Do you at least have some nice walks in the area? Asked Madame Bovary, speaking to the young man. Oh, very few, he answered. There's a place they call the pasture at the top of the hill by the edge of the forest. I go there sometimes on Sundays and stay there with a book, watching the sunset. I think nothing is as wonderful as a sunset, she said, especially at the seaside. Oh, I love the sea, said Monster Leon. And doesn't it seem to you, replied Madame Bovary, that one's spirit roams more freely over that limitless expanse, and that contemplating it elevates the soul and gives one glimpses of the infinite and the ideal. Boom, he's in love. Uh, at least that's Brian's interpretation of, of what just happened there. But it is incredibly boring. It is, I, I love that you brought up Yawnville, uh, but it is, it is super boring. And the, the other part that, and I'm, I'm ripping this off of, uh, Rene Prieto, who is a professor here in Dallas and who did a class on this last year at, uh, Dallas and City Humanities and Cultures. And he talked about um, that Bovary uh, is very similar to Bovin, which is French for cow. And that a lot of the characters in the novel who have names that start with B are supposed to be very cow-like in their nature. And, you know, it's interesting to me that Lyon... Uh, you know, is talking about going to this pasture. He just likes to hang out in the pasture, very much like a cow. And so I feel like this kind of permeates the novel in this people are just kind of grazing and chewing and hanging out and occasionally having sex, and that is about it. Uh, and that people are trying to find excitement in any way they can. And when you're in Yonville, that's basically limited to carrying out affairs or getting in debt. And that probably puts a little bit too fine a point <laughs> on the novel. No, it's, I think that's the broad arc. The other, the other one is Madame Tuvache. Uh, that's also Madame You Cow. Like he's literally just being like, you gossip, you awful person. <laughs> and she is. She's a terrible, awful person. Um, but I, I think that's... Part of the realism of this novel, part of the reason it is the crown of realism, or so people say, um, is precisely because it manages to get down to the nitty gritty of this boring nonsense of life and somehow elevate it enough to stand the test of time through the act of prose, I think, really is what it comes down to. The, the brilliant use of language is really what elevates it beyond its boringness. But the whole point is, it's boring. It's just like, I got to do something. I have nothing. I haven't got it. I don't, I don't have what I want. So I got to do something to get it. And just, you just get blocked at every turn if you're a character in this novel. And that's the grand tragedy of it. Well, she does have something. She has her subscription to uh, that library where she gets all of her fiction, right? True story. So, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, that's, she refers to that over and over and over that, you know, going back to when she was um, a young, younger girl in the convent, she would lie awake at night reading the sensationalist, sensationalist fiction, right? And looking for, she, what it, there's some line about blood, that she likes the blood and the lust and anything that's not boring that really can only exist in fiction. Otherwise, people would be totally miserable. But she's looking to bring those dramatic elements into her life 
which of course makes her and everyone else miserable. But I like how that's what she's relying on to get her through her boring life to the point that when things are going bad, her mother-in-law says, cancel her subscription. Don't let her get her hands on any more books. So, I mean, she very much has that at her disposal, even if in real life, it's just like, Ugh, what am I doing? She has that at her disposal. And in that way, she's kind of um, doing the thing that women aren't supposed to do in the period. She's, she's doing the, um, she's becoming immoral through her novels. You give a woman too many novels in the 1800s and that's a fast track to becoming an adulteress, which of course is played out mm -hmm. in the book. And if I remember mm -hmm. correctly, I'm gonna say this and it's gonna be wrong, but I think that her comeuppance at the end is part of why Flaubert escaped the uh, censors in the courts right after the novel was published. The fact that things turn out the way they do is the only reason really it got to continue existing. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so there's no happy ending and so we're good. Yeah, exactly. It's not like she gets away with this. It's not like she gets away with being an adulteress or uh, somebody who reads too many novels and thinking, thinks all of these things and is horrible to her husband. No, in the end, she really does get her comeuppance. Yeah, there's a part at the end where this is after, it's on page 256 in the Davis. And this is after the collectors, I don't know what the right word is for that. Uh, the people that have basically come to kind of seize her goods the repo man. The repo man. Thank you. So she's she's in this situation where she can't figure out a way out. The repo men have showed up to her house. She's still trying to keep it from Charles. And what she decides to do is Madam was in her room. One did not go upstairs. She would remain there all day long, listless, half-dressed, and from time to time burning pastilles of incense that she had bought in Rouen in a shop belonging to an Algerian. So as to not have that man lying there next to her at night asleep, she managed by the unpleasant faces she made to relegate him to the third floor. Until morning, she would read lurid books full of orgies and scenes of bloodshed. Often she would become terrified. She would, she would cry out. Charles would come running. Oh, go away, she would say. So yeah, she, she does the same thing that she did in the convent, which is turn to blood and orgies as a way to escape reality. And I'm wondering if Flaubert isn't having some fun with us, with this kind of Madame Bovary's turn to literature to escape her boring existence full of ennui and here we are reading Flaubert's novel about a woman that reads about blood and orgies and carries on affairs and I mean we're doing it because we're interested in high-minded literature obviously but you know other people might be reading this to escape and so, that was the worry of the courts at the time for sure say more about that uh well just that people would read this and it would corrupt the populace that was the big the great debate in the victorian period was does literature um what responsibility does the author have to the text he or she produces in terms of its relative uh effect on the masses uh does it corrupt young women does it corrupt young men does it send them off where does it edify and teach and correct and all those other things and that's why you have censorship you know running rampant even up through the 50s with lolita in america um is because of those kinds of debates. And, and Flaubert was kind of the most famous one of that period, this particular book um, on that point. I've lost your question in my mind, Brian. Is Flaubert, Flaubert playing with us? 
Um, yeah, he might be. He certainly might be. Uh, are we going to read this sort of boring novel to wake ourselves up and find the luridness in it? Um, and, and why? Why are we doing it? Are we just trying to escape our own yonvilles? Maybe. You know, I did, a, I did an interview yesterday with um, two actors that are putting on the play Madame Bovary here in Dallas and two, two female actors and they both separately said during the interview how much they love Emma Bovary and I was like okay you were surprised <laughs> I wasn't surprised <laughs> I'm not surprised because even I am am very interested in her complexity but to, to, and you know, and I, I, I think that the work, qua work, is amazing. That the novel is amazing. But I don't know if why. And I asked him this question, and it, and it could be just you know me being super sexist. Let's not rule that out. In that, when you the the tragic hero is an archetype that is well trodden, right? whether it's Hamlet or whether it's Tony Soprano. Uh, you know, it's a very compelling character. When you have a tragic heroine who is flawed, yet the main character of the story and is both overcoming and not overcoming great odds to get what she wants, why, why wouldn't that be just as attractive as a tragic hero? You know, why, why wouldn't that be as interesting to me? I don't know. Hmm. Wait, so you're, is she not that interesting to you? She's that super means? interesting, but okay, I don't, okay. I, I, I was, you know, yesterday when I was interviewing these actors, they were both like, I love Emma Bovary mm -hmm. and I'm just kind of, so you going, just don't love her. I don't love her. <laughs> like she's fascinating well, and, and the story is fascinating and you know, she is trying to, well, I don't, I, I guess how much is she, I guess it comes down to how mysterious she is to me. You know, like I don't, I'm not sure exactly why she does what she does. Hmm. I'll, I'll say it that way. Well, I wonder compared to other heroes, I guess she's not a hero at all, but compared to other protagonists that, stand the test of time it seems like um she's both waiting to be saved from something and she's making these pretty aggressive moves on her own and so that's i think kind of a strange combination that you don't find in maybe some male her heroes um like on on 53 it's part one chapter nine um she says deep in her the narrator Right, deep in her soul, however, she was waiting for something to happen. Like a sailor in distress, she would gaze out over the solitude of her life with desperate eyes, seeking some white sail in the mists of the far-off horizon. She did not know what this chance event would be, what wind would drive it to her, what shore it would carry her to, whether it was a longboat or a three-decked vessel loaded with anguish or filled with happiness up to the portals. But she keeps, so she keeps watching, and it's like she is waiting to be saved, and she feels stranded. Um, and I don't know how much that has to do with her reading and the really misguided ideas she has about what makes up everyday life. 
but she has that going while at the same time she is always well, like she says, scanning the horizon, but watching for opportunities that will take her out of this. So it's, that seems like a funny combination to me. So she latches onto these men and makes her move and actually goes through with adulterous acts, uh, you know, and so she's not passive, but in a way this really sounds passive. There's that, so that's like, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. You finish. No, it just seems like a funny combination to me. That's all. Yeah. Um, I think there's a way in which part of the, the felt stagnancy of this novel um, is Flaubert sort of uh, moving toward modernism a bit ahead of his time. This is really a novel about the internal told through an external set of prose. Um, so we get the the beats of the Victorian novel um, in terms of plot and character development and all these other things. But maybe part of what you're fighting against, Brian, is that um, in a more masculine plot or a more or a less forward thinking plot, you would have more action to hook into and more like movement to, to go forth with um, to get excited about. And really this novel's focus is on the internal, it's on Enema's mind and kind of like what goes on um, and what she can't really enact, what she can't really do. So it feels like this sort of trapped, like brain-centric story to me. Um, and in that way, it sometimes does feel relatable, but it also sometimes just feels preposterous, like almost like a farce, um, because how could you really be that stagnant or that trapped? Like, how are you that stuck? <laughs> Why have you let yourself get to this point? And I end up laughing, like I laughed my way through the last 60 pages. Um, which I love. I love that when I encounter a tragedy that makes me laugh because it's so absolutely perfectly just stuck. It's my favorite thing. That's one of the reasons I love this book. <laughs> well, the, what, what both you just said makes a lot of sense to me. And the way that I'll tie it back to a few things in the book is, uh, I forget if it was uh, Camus or Kundera who said that the novel is just an absurd philosophy of images. And in the book, we have several images that repeat. One is uh, Emma uh, leaning against her elbows, uh, or leaning, leaning like hand, I'm doing this in the video and nobody can see this since we're audio only. But um, her elbows on the windowsill, her hands around her chin, looking out, looking out the window, looking out to be safe, like you were saying, Anne. And that, so that image is repeatedly drawn upon in, in the book. And, that, and that's, that's a very kind of tragic image, a very, um, you know, princess in the tower kind of image of waiting to get saved. But there are other images of rebellion, and of striking out, and one of the one of the early ones is right when they move to Yonville. Her and Charles are sitting at the kitchen table, and she has I don't have I have no idea where this is in the book, but I'm ninety nine percent sure it's in there. And she has a knife, and she's carving into the wax tablecloth. And there's something to me there about destroying kind of her. You know, and when she's leaning on her elbows, looking out the window, she's trapped in that mental prison. 
And I feel like that image of her literally taking a knife to the kitchen table is her kind of rebellion against her physical constraints, that she is now a, a wife and a, and a mother and is trapped in this house with nothing to do and wants to destroy that prison that she's in. And this is the same thing with, uh, you know, the frequent walks to Rudolph, um, the escaping into the, you know, just the little arbor behind their house is a uh, Arcadia of sorts, a place to escape the mundane existence that is, you know, Athens, uh, to use a Midsummer Night's Dream reference. So... Is that on our bingo card too? Shakespeare reference. Shakespeare reference is on the bingo card, and also it was any any two French authors in one sentence. So oh, okay. I know Kandora was originally from Czechoslovakia, but wrote most of his stuff in French. So I'm counting that. So uh, three out of five here. I'm getting so close to bingo. I'm getting super close. But no, all that was just to 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 you know yes, and what you guys were saying about that entrapment about that what makes the character interesting and, and why, you know, she is heroic in some way, even though, you know, she ends up just killing herself. Vomiting black bile as a class. Vomiting black bile as a, oh man, yes. that was so gross. It is disgusting, but the whole book has that element of disgusting to it. So it well, was you, totally- you wanted to talk about um, pernicious liquids. <laughs> Is, yes, right. the preponderance of perverse liquids, which starts. Is there another pay we can get in there, though? Because I feel like I don't. I'm not going to be able to do it. But uh, you know, f- uh, alliteration with at least four P's is on my bingo card. I don't know. I think I win the bingo card though already for that. Oh. That's that's plenty. Like not not win the bingo, but I, that's definitely I'm checking off my card. The preponderance for, for of pernicious potions. Okay, pernicious so poisonous potions. Um, okay, so <laughs> I went it's, with yucky. Yucky. I like that. That's so much better. Um, I, it starts with uh, M, uh, Barrett's baptism at the beginning when she's first born. I don't remember which man anoints her, but she is anointed with wine in the middle of a party hmm. post-birth and the priest freaks out. He's like, this is sacrilegious. This is awful. And Flaubert takes a moment to note um, that she's been baptized essentially and never notes her real baptism. He only notes this baptism with party wine in a drunken sort of not brawl situation, but a drunken party situation. Um, and a glass continue- of champagne. I got it. There it is. Yeah. So it's yep, this like it false baptism from the beginning. Um, that was the first time I noticed this liquid thing and I just kept following it. And throughout the novel, there's these moments when Emma's vomiting or tasting or unable to deal with liquid at the moment. Um, and it, it all kind of wraps itself up in the end with her corpse in her wedding gown uh, sitting up and or when they lift her up to like move her, she just this black bile just pours out of her mouth. And I don't know what it is that's going on with this exactly. I just remember seeing it like six or seven times um, throughout the book. So I don't know if y'all have thoughts on what Flaubert might could be doing with this, uh, with this sacrilegious liquid. Well, I mean, it's the- a good contrast to all her, 
her beauty and all the beauty she wants to surround herself with, right? I mean, if it's, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that, well, I guess baptizing somebody with champagne, the mockery of the first sacrament, as it's said here, um, I guess that is a, still a contrast, even though the champagne itself isn't gross. Um, but that I, I see that as a contrast. Yeah. Prettiness. And it's also, you know, it's interesting. I'm trying to figure out how, well, I think that the, the black bile at the end might help with that idea of the gilded idol. You know, that mm-hmm. outside she still looks beautiful. She's in this wedding dress, but inside she's full of black bile. And as soon as you move her, the bile comes out. I also think it's potentially interesting that with all this pernicious poison, poisonous potions that appear periodically, <laughs> perchance that is related to the fact that she poisons herself with powdered arsenic yeah mm-hmm. not a not a liquid so it almost it almost feels like if we're going to follow that um train of logic that you know in order to create a liquid you know from a powdered compound you got to dissolve it in something right and so maybe emma is that help me with the chemistry term that I'm trying to remember from 11th grade, the solution that, ah. you, that you dissolve the arsenic in. Right. And so that there's some, hmm. there's some part of her that you need that is that pointing to that she is some kind of solution that will dissolve this arsenic into it to create this, you know, liquid form of the poison. Hmm. And she does, I mean, and you think about it, you know, her death does bring about, the death of Charles, it does, you know, not necessarily directly, but indirectly lead to the death of Charles's mother. Then, you know, Charles's aunt dies and, and Bertha, or no, Charles's aunt doesn't die. No, she's just poor. So it's basically the same thing. She's just poor and Bertha, you know, gets sent to the cotton mill. So in some way, you know, well, I guess I'll ask this question. Is, is Madame Bovary a form of poison? Does she poison Yonville's, uh, Strong moral fiber. I think to, to extend... Hopefully, hopefully the audio is picking up me laughing as I ask that question. <laughs> to extend that question, I would say uh, that that's certainly, again, the only way that this book made it through the censors is by condemning Emma to be that poison of Yonville. Um, but I don't know that that's necessarily the truth behind the text or that she must sort of be pinned in that um so is is the poison within emma within emma or is she experiencing the poison from without i'm not well sure. i like what brian said about mix that she is the liquid the poison is mixed in so if it was just if the powder stayed on the shelf um <laughs> you know <laughs> that's not going to uh, ruin everybody around her. Um, so it was a matter of her taking something into herself, say sensationalist literature or arsenic, and then it mixes within her and out comes this thing that ruins just about everybody. Um, did Were you, Ashley, were you reading another 
interpretation or or that you said well, I forget what you said you said something about um oh shoot I lost it on liquid or on no not else. about liquid but about about um about Madame Bovary that would no, no, oh no about what Sorry. she about what she I lost is it. I I mean I yeah, kind I, of withhold judgment on Emma's you know uh, relative morality or immorality. Um, but I do think it's interesting to like ask around it and see what other people have come up with. I don't know if that answers your question. I don't know that I have, a, I don't know that I believe one way or another about Emma other than that mm -hmm. certainly what happens to her has all of the elements of a great tragedy. Or if you, if you had written it a different way, a, a great comedy of errors really like this could have easily just been a hilarious book <laughs> just with with the few turns here and there in in terms of emma being you know some type of i don't know not object but some type some type of substance some types of some type of thing that that does something that that is uh we're you know anthropomorphizing kind of poison in the in the person of Emma. Another thing that I wanted to try to figure out what Flaubert is doing in the novel with something that is inanimate but used for action is the writing crop. Yeah. Writing crops hmm. keep popping up. And the first time is on page 15. And it's the first words that the narrator actually gives us between Emma and Charles. And, you know, this is as Charles leaving, it's her and him kind of in the, in the vestibule or in the hallway about to leave. And Emma says, are you looking for something? She, she asked my writing crop, please. He answered. And that's the first thing we ever hear. First conversation. They, they have, a, they, the narrator says they had a conversation prior to that, but it was short. And that was like the first words they'd spoken to each other. But the first words that the narrator quote is that, quote about the riding crop and then she buys a riding crop for rudolph and so this and i think there's a couple more in here with the riding crop and so i'm just wondering you know what what type of imagery or why is why do you think flaubert is using this imagery of the riding crop with emma and charles and emma and rudolph hmm. well it is a is it am i right that it's like a whip to spur on the horses mm-hmm is that what it is? That's this basic yeah. function, or is yeah. there something else that one can do with a writing crop? <laughs> I, I don't know. Depends on, depending on what you're into, Anne. I think is the answer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I think that I, I I certainly think there could be something sexual going on with the use of the writing crop between these two, um, or with Flaubert. I mean, the whole thing is, and this is another reason why. Like, well, this is this is partly why like censorship is really dumb right but it's also hilarious because <laughs> who do you think is going to be better at getting around that like artists or bureaucrats yeah right? <laughs> and so you know i kind of love the thing i love about censorship is how creative it's like forced artists to be like i can't say sex in this Rolling Stones song. So I'm going to say love 
and you know like led zeppelin is talking about squeezing a lemon and like it in some ways it brings out tremendous beauty and so as a way to get around the censors you have these images and i, I mean i know there's one right past the writing crop thing so uh, i'll read one of them which is uh, part one chapter three this is page 19 as it was, uh, so her and, uh, so this is very early on. This is before they're married. This is at um, La Beltreau, which is, I think I'm also winning in the trying to pronounce French and doing it very badly. You're which doing is, it. Is on my behalf, you are. Doing it super badly. <laughs> so they're, you know, at Emma's father's farm uh, and they're going to have a drink, her, uh, Emma and Charles. And so they, so she went to get a bottle of curacao from the cupboard, took down two small glasses, filled one to the rim, poured almost nothing in the other. And after touching it to his, raised it to her mouth. As it was almost empty, she leaned back to drink and with her head tipped, her lips thrust out, her neck tense, she laughed at feeling nothing while the tip of her tongue passing between her delicate teeth licked the little stabs at the bottom of the glass. There it is. If, if uh, right now I'm, I've got my Southern style fan out, uh, listeners, and I'm, I'm fanning myself uh, <laughs> very, very, very uh, quickly, because this is, you know, I think trying to get this, you know, get these fictional sexual beings, you know, firmly embedded in at some level of the reader's psyche is by, you know, putting these types of images in there, and it's something that came out. You know, I'll, I'll reference back to the interview I did yesterday, which was, you know, one of the actors was just, you know, said, which I agree with, it's Emma is a sexual being, a sexual being, and she wants what she wants. And that made a lot of sense to me. And especially when you, I mean, she grew up in a convent. Yeah. Oh, my God. And she had mystics all around her, like mystic literature which is very sexual, actually. Like, there's so much in mysticism that just is, it sounds directly sexual. Yeah, and so I could see how, well, I could see how the censors were like, no, this is bad because of what she does. And I'm like, I think more it's just like, this is barely going to squeak into PG-13. <laughs> like, we're, we're giving this an R. Like, this is, this is hot. This stuff is hot. Really so I'll, I'll, I'll open it up to more of kind of a, a general question to kind of close on. And we've been kind of, you know, talking about this a decent amount, but I'd like to kind of listen to you guys try to put as fine a point on it as you can is what is the kind of long lasting fascination and attraction to Emma Bovary, not the novel, but the character itself. Hmm. Well, I keep going back to um, this one sentence from the notary, um, that one in part three, chapter seven on 269 of the Davis, um, where she's on all sorts of trouble. She's racked up 8,000 francs worth of debt. No one can pay. And she's really being threatened by these repo men. And then the notary um, continued gallantly, pretty things never do any harm. And I think that culturally, we really look at beautiful things and we think in a way that they can't do any harm. Um, but then there is that subversive part 
um, like you were mentioning about getting around sensors, Brian, of having to up the ante on the, the beauty or the flowery language to get around what's unsavory. Um, and so just to, to me, that sentence seemed to really be the heart of the entire book. Pretty things never do any harm. Um, I don't, I mean, she, there, here she is. She's so beautiful. She has hair down to her knees. I think he says at one point, um, this, you know, tiny little waist, her fair, fair skin, her big dark eyes. And all she can do is feel miserable in her beauty and seems to lash out at absolutely everything around her. Plus becomes a vial of poison by the end that, really makes everybody's life just explode. Um, to me, that's pretty lasting, you know, that, that it goes against everything we think about, about beauty, that of course, pretty things can do a whole lot of harm. Um, but it's just those, just that juxtaposition again, like we were talking about earlier, that's, it keeps you thinking. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I love that wrap up in terms of what the novel's doing. I'd offer a, sort of a second option there. Um, for me, every bit of this story is bound up in the phrase that Rudolph utters when Emma comes to say, I need 3000 francs from you. Um, and it's, I haven't got it. Everything to me that Emma does is in reaction to this feeling of not having, um, of jealousy, of feeling blocked from getting something that she wants um, and, and various iterations of that sort of lack. Um, and frankly, I think that that's just sort of a relatable thing throughout the generations. We all know what it is to sit and say, man, I really want that thing. And then ponder to what lengths we'll go to to get that thing. Um, and the interesting thing about Emma Bovary is that she pretty much goes to any lengths uh, to get to get what she wants um, for her for her time period and her setting. Um, and I think we maybe voyeuristically a bit kind of watch her her downfall um, because it, because it's exactly relatable because we sort of understand that desire. Um, and, and we also, I think there's something sadistic about this story about like watching Emma too. Like, I don't know, that's a little harsh, but uh, it's, it's easy and sometimes just entertaining to watch people in literature and on stage, just like Titus Andronicus um, sort of experience these great depths of awful. Um, it teaches us maybe to, to deal with it or to, um, to understand it in some way, but in, at the at the very core of it, I think she's just a really relatable character. Well, what do you make of having Rodolfo or whatever the heck his name is being the one who says, "I don't have it"? Um, I mean, she, it sounds like you're saying this is something she really wants. She wants to be able to pay off this debt so she doesn't have to admit to Charles that she's racked it up to begin with. But then she is looking to be saved again right yeah so she she has the agency to go to this guy who she should never have been intimate with she has that agency but she doesn't have a way of getting the money except through 
this relationship she shouldn't have had to begin with. So what do you make of having him being the one who says, I don't have it? I, I see that as his sort of ultimate disconnectedness, you know, that he, he's never going to give it to her. Clearly he does have it. Um, he's of course rich enough to give her this, in my opinion, um, the interpretation, the correct interpretation is that he's got this money and he's just not going to give it to her. Um, and I, I think it's the sort of nail in the coffin on Emma's ability to sort of trick and uh, manipulate her way through the story as she has thus far been able to. Um, people are so just kind of done with indic- it. So do you, do you think that his not having the money is indicative of, of everything else he's refusing to give her? Yeah, I, yeah. Don't essentially it's don't come to me for anything more than sex, <laughs> which is what he's okay. been saying essentially since the beginning of his interest in an affair with her. You know, the the last thing he utters when he's mentally sort of pondering starting something with Emma is, but how to get rid of her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and he never does get rid of her until this moment where he says the line that essentially causes her to kill herself. Well, and I know we're, we're trying to wrap up, but now that made me think of something else is that, <laughs> you know, she doesn't kill herself after she sees Rudolph, right? <clears throat> she goes back to LaRue, I think. Does she go back to LaRue next? I can't remember. There are a lot of steps in this. Well, I know that she, one. I know the last one is Benet, right? Mm. The tax collector. Mm-hmm. And then that's when that's when Madame Tuvache is looking through the window and we don't exactly hear what they're saying. But we see uh, Emma on her knees in front of him, hand on his knee, and we only hear him say something like, what are you proposing, madame? And, mm-hmm. and, and it's when, when he refuses her that she decides to kill herself. So I wonder if that's not to some level like the she has no other options but also there is no way for her to get what she wants anymore and because she's gone through the story kind of a little bit getting what she wants not all of it but occasionally a little bit but now you know leon has not showed up rudolph has turned her down larue has turned her down benet has turned her down her last hope is really going to charles i guess and admitting it but as she says in a previous part, like the last thing that she would want to do is ever have him, have her feel him superior to her. Yeah. And so it's that she no longer, there's no way for her to get what she wants anymore. And it's at that point that she decides to kill herself. Cause it seems like she's trying to prostitute herself at that, at the point that she's talking to Benet and that's well, not, except that she, go ahead. I could be totally sorry. wrong about this. She's, well, she says I'm not for sale on 270 right i think she so says she that to larue the- right but then she go, but then that fails and then she goes to benet and then we don't hear what she says because we've we've gotten the um yeah so it let's see i know exactly i think i know exactly what you're talking about uh bu- bu- bu. yeah that's on 270 he oh yeah so this is benet- yeah. who is she talking to at 270 this is in the same part as pretty things never do any yeah. harm. Is this LaRue? Uh, yep. I thought it was the last one because she asks the 
mirror whoever to unlace her corset because she's about to faint. So I thought that was the end of that's the notary. Mm, What's the notary's name? She was afraid of it. The notary continued gallantly. Okay, so this is not LaRue. She punctuated her story with recriminations against LaRue. Oh, this is Matra Gulimin, I think. Yeah. Matra Gulimin. Yeah, the notary tries to get her to sleep with him. Yeah, I think the notary tries Mm -hmm. to get that. And she leaves. And then... So then on 271, she thinks about going to Charles. Yes, she muttered, clenching her teeth. He'll forgive me. He, whereas even if he gave me a million, it wouldn't be enough to make me forgive him for knowing me. Never, never. The idea of Bovary's superiority Mm -hmm. enraged her. But then we get this all, yeah, then it's Benet. And we get this all from uh, Madame Madame Tuvash's perspective. Um, So she goes to Benet. And we're getting the play-by-play between yeah, no Madame doubt she was pro- proposing something scandalous. Yeah, no doubt uh. she was proposing something scandalous. And then it's when this fails that she kills herself. She doesn't mind prostituting herself as long as it's her idea. Yeah, yeah, I think is that, that might be. Yeah, I think that might be it. But also the fact that it doesn't work. You know yeah. that that that's the last nail in the almost literal coffin. Mm-hmm. is the fact that she finally does attempt to prostitute herself and it doesn't work and then she's done yeah yeah anyway and then there's the musical number so but we don't <laughs> want to spoil that for everybody so we'll let you read that part um or youtube it actually i don't know if there has been a musical of madame bovary so ashley that's something that you and i can work on here yeah let's get it done let's, let's get, get it, done. it done and executive producer credit um, you're <laughs> you're getting drafted on Great. this project. Boom! Oh, I'm there. there. Just call me. Yeah, <laughs> we will. Uh, the only contributions I will have are all these bingo jokes that are t- <laughs> terrible, and will hopefully get cut uh, before the final edit. Anyway, we are like 50 minutes, guys. Thank you so much for joining. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for helping me understand this novel uh, a lot more than you, my my yeah. pedantic approach. My my perfidious pedantic <laughs> putrid blame me for the puny uh-uh. attempt to, uh, <laughs> it's been really fun brian thank you so much for no having problem. me on. Let, let me let me plug you guys this stuff uh ashley the name of your blog is uh i'm at writethinkdream.com i produce a podcast called annotated the podcast for books and their people and i write uh about books at getting a read um, talking about the relationship between text and people. Super. And where can people find you? Probably best on my Twitter feed, just Ann Knegendorf. K-N-I-G-G-E-N-D-O-R-F. Not with an S, everybody. Even though Not I keep wanting to put one in there. Right, there are no S's. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. Combat and Classics podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Um,